is a, uh, it's a startling story. It's one that when we read it, and we can read it in the Gospel of Matthew, we can read it in the Gospel of Mark, but when we read it, it causes us, us to sit up and to take notice. You can't sleep your way through this story. Because the words of Jesus just cut through our apathy like a knife. Because they speak of eternal realities and of a fate that is too terrible for words. Jesus had been ministering for some time throughout Judea and Galilee. Announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand and calling upon people to repent and to believe the gospel and verifying his messianic identity and his messianic mission with signs and wonders of every kind. The blind were made to see, the deaf were made to hear, the lame got up and walked, demons fled from his presence, the dead were raised to new life, and all of this just at the, at the sovereign command of this Christ. And all of it happened in order to announce that Messiah the King was here. And that He had come to save His people from their sins and to establish His kingdom. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they saw it all. They witnessed the miracles. They heard His preaching. They observed His blazing righteousness just shining into the darkness and the depravity of sin like a beacon. And they hated Him for it. Because they loved the darkness rather than the light. And their hatred and their jealousy boiled over one day when a man who was blind and mute and demon-possessed was brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that he spoke and saw clearly. And Jesus did this very publicly. All of the crowd saw it and they were amazed and they began wandering aloud one to another. Is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah that we've been hoping for and waiting for and praying for? And when the Pharisees heard this, they leapt into action and they began spreading throughout the crowd a vile rumor that was intended to discredit Jesus. This man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He's not from God. In other words, they were claiming that far from being anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus was empowered by the demonic spirit of Satan. Well, at this... And you can visualize the scene. Massive crowds surrounding the man who is blind and deaf and and demon possessed is now in his right mind and he sees and, and, and the whispers going through the crowd and the Pharisees infecting the discussions at various places with this plot to, to discredit Jesus and suddenly Jesus stops. And he looks directly at the Pharisees and his eyes just piercing through the mask of hypocrisy that they wore. And you can sense this hush falling over the crowd as Jesus' voice changed and it took on an ominous and a warning tone. And he first pointed out the absurd logic on which their assertion was based. He said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Satan is not going to finance the overthrow of his own kingdom. But, he said, Matthew 12, 28, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know, you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he uttered words that have caused the consciences of tender souls to just cower in terror for nearly 2,000 years. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Just allow those words to fall upon you. No forgiveness. An eternal sin. 
No chance at mercy. Not now, not ever. A person who commits such a sin is beyond hope. They are dead even while they live. It's as if Jesus pointed his finger directly at the Pharisees and he said, watch out. This isn't a game. There is a line that you are perilously close to crossing. There is a sin for which there is no pardon. It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? An unpardonable, unforgivable, irredeemable sin. We're not comfortable with such language in Baptist churches. And did it not come from the lips of Christ himself, we might be tempted to pass it off as hyperbole, exaggeration, but Jesus was not prone to hyperbole. He was not given to exaggeration. He meant what he said. And that troubles us because everyone knows that God will forgive anything, right? But this is not the only passage of Scripture that indicates that there is such a thing as an unpardonable sin. The Old Covenant differentiated between sins of ignorance for which there was a sacrifice of atonement and what were called high-handed sins. Defiant, blasphemous, covenant-breaking sins for which there was no atonement provided. Such covenant breakers, according to the old covenant law, were to be completely cut off from the people of God, their guilt remaining on their own heads. Numbers 15, 27 to 31, Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. There was no atonement under the old covenant for high-handed, covenant-breaking, God-forsaking sins committed not in ignorance, but in full knowledge of what they were doing. And it's not just an old covenant concept. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, chapter 5, and verse 16, he writes, If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will for him give life to the ones committing a sin not leading to death. And then listen, but there is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that he should make request for this. There is a sin leading to death, a sin that leaves the transgressor beyond hope, rendering intercessory prayer futile. Does that frighten you? Because it frightens me. And I think it is intended to frighten us. It is the purpose of these warning passages that are sprinkled throughout Scripture. They are designed... By God, to shake off our apathy and to prevent us from taking grace for granted and to cause us to cling all the more tightly to Christ that we might continue the rest of our lives to say, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Because, beloved, listen to me, there are so many who walk away and say such things no longer. You must not presume upon the grace of God, teenagers heading to college. Because if you walk out, you might not come back. Do not presume upon the grace of God, businessmen who travel on Sundays. Because if you forsake Christ, you might not Come back. And these passages are installed into our hearts like an early warning system while we're here. So that when we begin to test the boundaries of our freedom, they go off. Danger, 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 danger. So give heed to the warning this morning. It is for your everlasting good. Because you have a Father who loves you and is willing that you would not walk away and perish in His wrath. 
What we have come to today in Hebrews chapter 10 is really the fourth of five nearly identical warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And I just want to walk you through to show us, because we've been at this for a number of months now, and this is a recurrent theme which tells us this is very important in the thought of the, of the author of Hebrews. So just, just walk with me through a little tour of Hebrews real quick, if you would. Hebrews chapter 2, the first warning came in verses 1 through 4. We were warned against neglecting so great a salvation, warned against drifting away from the truth that we had heard, and exhorted to pay much closer attention, he says. Don't drift away, pay much closer attention so that you do not neglect so great a salvation. The second warning came in Hebrews chapter 3, and it ran from verse 7 to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. Where we, the people of God, were warned against the unbelief and disobedience that had been exhibited by the wilderness generation in Israel. That, listen, went to the very border of the promised land and then turned back. The third warning we covered just before Christmas. Merry Christmas. It was Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Where the author warned us that In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, seeing as how they crucify the Son of God all over again. They've passed a point of no return. And here we come to warning number four. There will be another in Hebrews chapter 12. Very similar, bearing many of the characteristics that we've already seen in these previous warnings. Even even bearing striking similarities to the words of Jesus to the Pharisees in Mark 3 and Matthew 12. The passage dealing with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're talking about the same thing. My purpose this morning is twofold. I want to establish for us, biblically, that there is such a thing as an unpardonable sin. There is a line which, when crossed, renders a person beyond hope of forgiveness. And on that basis, I want to exhort you to persevere in faith. Number two, however, I want to comfort any tender consciences in the room who are worrying right now whether you've committed this sin. And I intend to show you that if you are worrying whether you have committed this sin and are heartbroken over the possibility that maybe you have, then surely you have not. This passage is a warning. It is intended to drive struggling, tempted, weak believers further into Christ. And if it has that effect on you, rejoice, beloved, your name is written in the book of life. So two purposes. We have some work to do before we get to the second part, though. We've got to be honest with the text this morning. We need to resist the temptation to soften the warning. I think the words that I used in our pastor's meeting were to declaw or defang warnings that God intended to have teeth and claws. He intended these these words to hurt a little bit as they fall upon our hearts and our ears. So what we're going to do, the people of God who believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and are dedicated to the Word of God, we're going to stare this text down. We're going to allow it to have its intended effect. And then we're going to close by turning right back to the Gospel and saying once again, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. So, we're going to approach this text by asking of it a number of questions. First is this, what is the unpardonable sin? What are are the characteristics of this transgression for which there is no forgiveness? And I, I think first maybe we need to establish that the author is indeed speaking of the unpardonable sin. So let's let's look at verses 26 and 27, just sort of dissect his words. He says this, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That sounds to me, and I wonder if it does to you, eerily similar to the words of Jesus in Mark 3 and Matthew 12. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. It's the same thing. Numbers chapter 15 makes clear that atonement is only available for those sins committed in ignorance, not those sins which are committed after receiving the knowledge of the truth, in the words of Hebrews 10.26. In other words, we're in the same arena when we're talking about this sort of covenant-breaking, God-forsaking, blaspheming sin. And as we shall see more clearly in a moment... I think the author is speaking of the willful rejection and repudiation of the once-for-all sufficient final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, and it's at this point that we ought, to just, we ought to just employ a little bit of basic logic. Just think, think with me. If a sinner turns his back on the only sacrifice God has ever provided for sin... Where else can he possibly turn for atonement? If a sinner rejects God's best, nothing else remains but God's wrath. The first century Jewish Christians to whom the author wrote were tempted to do just that thing. And it came in this form. They were tempted under the pressure of persecution and and uh, temptation from, from the culture that was surrounding them, their, their non-Christian Jewish neighbors, and this incredible pressure was being put upon them to conform and return back to the synagogue, back to the old covenant, back to the law, back to the priesthood, back to the temple, back to the sacrifices. Let's go back. You, they, they were saying to their separated brethren, come on back home, come on back. And the author is seeing this and he's seeing, he's seeing this tension in their minds and he's seeing it play out in their lives and some of them indeed have already gone back and he's writing to warn those who are, who are right on the line. And his argument has been designed to show that there's nothing for you in the old covenant anymore. The old covenant sacrifices indeed were completely ineffective in removing sin. The old covenant was only temporary. It was only for a time. It was only preparatory for the new covenant that would come in Christ. The old covenant priests, they were but shadows of the true priests to come. The old covenant sacrifices, they were but shadows and types of the true sacrifice to come. If you reject the reality and you grasp a hold of the shadow, all you have is air. There's nothing there. There's no atonement. So he says, if you turn away from Christ and return to bulls and goats, you have no forgiveness of sins. Only death and judgment and terror and fury and wrath. If any of you, any of us, pastors fall away too. If any of us turns away from the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ to our own works of merit, our own self-righteousness, our own attempts at self-salvation, our trying to be good enough in order for God to accept us and check the checklist off and, and follow the rules. That's how we sacrifice bulls and goats. Being good, keeping your nose clean, doing the right things, going to church when you ought. If we, if we substitute that for the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. That's the point. The only thing that awaits us is facing a judgment as the adversary of God and being consumed by the fire. So the sin spoken of in this passage is unpardonable. There is no atoning sacrifice for it. Because the sin is the rejection of the only sacrifice God provides and accepts. What does the sin look like? The author gives to us three characteristics. First, it is a persistent sin. 
He says, if we go on sinning. Present tense participle okay, of the verb sinning. Present tense denotes that it is a persistent, continuous, present tense activity. In other words, this is not an uncharacteristic lapse in faithfulness. Rather, this is the new and settled course of life. You see the difference? It's a persistent sin. Secondly, it is a deliberate sin. If we go on sinning willfully, ESV has deliberately. This sin is is a settled course of life which, although, although, here's the danger, okay, do you, I, I hope that the alarm system's going off, although it may begin as a slow and imperceptible drift, Hebrews 2.1, right? We need to pay much closer attention, tie on to the dock so that we do not drift away from the truth that we have heard. It begins as a drift, but it moves on from there. It amplifies and it culminates in deliberate, decisive Action, a final renunciation of the faith. I'm done with Christ. But I would warn you, sometimes those words aren't said with words. Sometimes they're said with a life. I'm done with Christ. Done with him being my king. I'm done with following him when the whole world's against me. I'm done trying to... To pull myself up by my bootstraps and and follow Jesus when everything within me wants what the world has to offer. And I'm tired of it. It's a persistent sin. It's a deliberate sin. Third, it's a defiant sin. It's not committed in ignorance. It is committed in defiance of the knowledge one has received. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That's why it's the sin of the Pharisees who'd been with Jesus from the beginning, saw his miracles, heard his preaching, saw the dead get up to life, and then turned around and claimed that Jesus was an operative of Satan. Beloved, this is not the sin of outsiders. This is not the sin of pagans, Gentiles. This is the sin of insiders This is the sin of those within the covenant community. This is the sin of baptized converts who once were with us, but are with us no longer. Who once had received the knowledge of the truth, but now reject it. So let me be perfectly clear, because warnings that are not clear don't have their effect. Let me be perfectly clear about who is addressed in this passage. Who is in danger? This passage, this whole book of Hebrews is written to the church. To baptized members of the new covenant community. It is written to those who have professed faith in Christ, who have participated in the fellowship of the church, who have even, Hebrews chapter 6, experienced some of the benefits of the Holy Spirit at work within the church. They've They've had some experience of joy. They've had some experience of peace. They've had some, they've witnessed supernatural things going on in the church. This book is not addressed to outsiders with no affiliation with Christ or his church. It is not addressed to the world. Beloved, it is addressed to you and to me. And those who are in perilous danger of crossing the line and committing the unpardonable sin are those who were once a part of us, who once were here with us in worship, who once gathered with us at the Lord's table, who once went with us on mission trips, who once were were members of our connect groups, who once were leaders of our connect groups. And then they just sort of drifted away. Their attendance became sporadic and it ceased altogether. You talk with them, you'll find that their hearts have grown cold and distant. And then bitter and worldly. They're the ones who speak about how much they were hurt in that church. And what a bunch of hypocrites they were. They are our adult children. 
They are our spouses. They are our parents. They are our friends, our relatives. And they are in grave danger. We know who these people are. You have people ringing in your minds right now. You know of whom I speak. And you know that at one point in the time, they look just like you. And you ought to be warned. But you also know those who have taken the last decisive step to finally reject and repudiate what they once professed to believe and love. And the author of Hebrews looks us in the eye and he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for their sins. What does it mean? What is the result of the unpardonable sin? There no longer remains for them a sacrifice for sins, but what does remain, verse 27, is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Jump down to verse 30. The end of the passage, the author says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? The world? Of course. Not who he's talking about. The Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the result of the unpardonable sin. It's it's not a pleasant topic, I know, but it is a necessary one because I really believe that until we face up to the reality of what it means to walk away from Christ and we don't just slap a once saved, always saved on those who haven't been here in 15 years, but we actually face up to what it means to walk away from Christ Until we do that, we cannot feel the intense urgency of the outreach and of the mutual encouragement to which we are continually exhorted in this passage. Beloved, this is the context. That is the danger that causes them to say, but consider how we may stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near, encourage one another that you don't walk away because those who walk away face vengeance, fury, fire, wrath, judgment, damnation. Encourage one another. We need that to be happening. We need people to call us when we're not here. We need people to come running after us when we enter into a relationship that may not be good for us. We need each other to stay close to Christ. The stakes could not be higher. So I want us to feel it. Unpleasant as it is, I promise you I'll, I'll, I'll bring us back up at the end. But let's look at the text. and I want, I, I want to establish three truths about the situation of those who walk away from Christ. Number one, they are in a hopeless state. This is the effect of the statement at the end of verse 26, namely that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is why Jesus said that the one who commits such a sin has no forgiveness either in this age or in the age to come, Matthew 12, 32. This is why the author of Hebrews earlier in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, said that it is impossible to renew such a person to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So just... Take a second and just try to wrap your mind around the hopelessness of their estate. No wonder the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 2 that those who have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ yet are again entangled in them and are overcome. There's there's the final state. And are overcome. They're entangled and then they're overcome. Listen. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Then he goes on. 
In fact, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to then turn away from the holy commandment. How can it possibly be better to never have known the gospel than to know it and reject it? I can think of two reasons off the top of my head. Number one, to know the commandment and then reject it incurs a greater judgment. And number two, those who know it and reject it have inoculated themselves. That's why when you reach out to them, it feels like a pebble going off a brick wall. It's a hopeless state. Secondly, it is a terrifying state. Twice in this passage, the author uses the word terrifying to to describe the judgment of God that awaits those who renounce the faith. Verse 27 and verse 31. Listen to me, beloved. You do not want to face the fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. You, You do not want to fall into the hands of the living God if you are his enemy. Now, that view of God may startle us who are not accustomed to thinking of our Father in this way. But R.T. France wrote a commentary on Hebrews, and he had a statement I thought was worth quoting here. He said this, The same God who is revealed in Scripture to be a loving Father is also revealed to be a consuming fire. It is a hopeless state. It is a terrifying state. Third, this is scariest for me. It is a living state in other words this line is not just crossed at death it's a terrifying state described of those who are still alive that's why he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but only a terrifying expectation not experience expectation of judgment and of a fury that will consume the adversaries The judgment and furious fire is expected, but not yet experienced. This is a living hopelessness, a living judgment, and that is a thought too terrible to comprehend, which is why the people of God are addressed while they are still here. One more piece of work we must do before we lay down some application. And that is to answer the question, why? Why is the unpardonable sin unpardonable? In order to answer this, we need to turn to verses 28 and 29 and press a little further into the question of what this sin is in order to learn why it is so terrible and so final that it renders a sinner beyond pardon and forgiveness. All right, the author in those verses, 28 and 29, he is establishing the severity of the sin and of the judgment which it incurs. And he does so by means of an old covenant, new covenant, how much more comparison. He's used it a number of times throughout the book of Hebrews. He says this, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here comes the how much more. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. The author has a text in mind. And that text is Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. Which stipulated a fair trial, right? On the testimony of two or three witnesses. In order to establish guilt. And then death without mercy. For the one who rejected the covenant of the Lord. Again. The sin in question is not a lapse in an otherwise faithful life. It is not an uncharacteristic stumble into sin. It is a high-handed, hard-hearted rejection of the covenant of the Lord and therefore of the Lord of the covenant. And it was a serious matter to be dealt with severely. What is in view in Deuteronomy 17 is the sin of apostasy. And the author's point is if that severe a punishment was was required for rejecting the shadow, how much severer punishment will be meted out for those who reject the substance, the reality? 
In verse 29, the author describes exactly then what it means to renounce Christ and to renounce the new covenant in His blood. He does so in three ways. Stick with me, and then we're going we're gonna to wrap this up. Number one, what is, what is the unpardonable sin? Why is it unpardonable? What is going on here? Number one, it is the rejection of Christ as the Son of God. An apostate is one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Same word, same phrase used by Jesus in Matthew 7, 6 when he warns against casting your pearls before swine. Why? Because they'll trample it underfoot. That's exactly what these people have done to the Lord Christ. They've trampled Him underfoot. It is to renounce, repudiate, treat with contempt Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is saying, I don't believe in you. I don't believe you are the Son of God. I don't believe you are the Christ. I don't believe you're the King. I don't want you as my Lord. I don't believe you're worthy of my faith. I don't believe you are worthy of my obedience. I don't believe you are worth me giving my life to. In fact, I find you irrelevant and false. That's trampling under the foot the Son of God. Sometimes, just search for it on YouTube, sometimes it comes out of people's mouths. More often than not, it comes out of their hearts and is manifested by the direction of their life. Secondly, it is a rejection of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. An apostate is one who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. It's decided that the cross of Christ is no longer of importance, no longer worth trusting in, hoping in, singing about. He has profaned. What does profaned mean? It means regards as just common, just a common death. Jesus just died because he, he fell on the wrong side of the Romans. Not in trouble with the Jews. Not that the Lord was pleased to crush him for the iniquity of his people. Just a death. Like the tens of thousands of other folks who were crucified in the Roman era. It is a rejection and repudiation of the redeeming work of Christ. That's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking when a formally professing Christian renounces and walks away from the only sacrifice that God has ever given which can truly sanctify His people. Third, it's a rejection of the Spirit of grace. An apostate is one who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Another phrase which is eerily similar to the way Jesus described the sin of the, blasph- or the, of the Pharisees as those who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to insult the Spirit of grace. Pharisees did so when they declared that Jesus was performing miracles by the power of Satan. Performing miracles by the power of Satan. Fraudulent work going on here. To insult, ESV has outrage. The spirit of grace is to deny and renounce his gracious activity in the life of the church. It is to claim that the transformed lives of those within the church, the haters of God becoming lovers of God, the unbelievers becoming believers, the disobedient becoming obedient, the bitter becoming loving, the unforgiving opening up their hearts to mercy, the sexually immoral and enslaved becoming pure and, and, and united in their marriages, the addicts becoming set free and living a life that is, that is free by the glory of God through the gospel of Christ. And they say, you know what? That is just the result of the mor- morally persuasive power of religion. You can get it in Christianity, you can get it in Mormonism, you can get it in Islam, you can get it without any of these crutches. See what they've done? They've taken the glorious work of the Spirit and they've thrown it in the dust. So let's piece it together and let's construct a definition of the unpardonable sin. Here it is, I'll give it to you twice. The unpardonable sin is the persistent 
deliberate, deliberate, defiant rejection and renunciation of the Son of God, His sacrifice, and the Spirit of grace. Let me, do it. Let me run that by you again. Lots of words, but they're important words. The unpardonable sin is the persistent, deliberate, defiant rejection and renunciation of the Son of God, His sacrifice, and the Spirit of grace. Now, why is that unpardonable? It only makes sense. If you reject and renounce the Son, is there any other Savior? If you reject and renounce His sacrifice, is there any other offering for sin? If you reject and renounce the Spirit, is there anyone else who can awaken you from spiritual death and apply the work of redemption to your heart? In other words, if you turn your back on the best and last gift of God, the Son, the Spirit, and the blood, you cannot and you will not be saved. All that remains for you is the fury of a fire that consumes divine vengeance and judgment in the terrifying hands of the living God. What do we do? What do we do with a warning like this? You've heard me say it before, you'll hear me say it again when we get to chapter 12. God intends for his people to hear it and to heed it. That's what you must do. You must hear the warning, receive it as the word of God to you, his people, and heed it. How? By hearing and heeding it, number one, personally. Keep a close watch on your heart. I, I want to I point out something that I hope will cause you to pause and to think. I want you to look at the very first word of this passage. It's a little word, but little words matter. It's the connective particle for, which expresses cause, reason, motive for what was previously said. In this case, what was previously said was this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully, See, there is a connection between apostasy and letting go of the confession of your hope. And there is a connection between apostasy, letting go of the confession of your hope, and forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Mark my words. Withdrawing from the assembly of the church is never a sign of spiritual health. Never. There are no exceptions when people withdraw from the church and they're getting healthier. Never. It is always a sign of spiritual disease. So how do we hear and heed this for ourselves? We beware of wavering doubts as to the hope of the gospel and the truths of the faith. We deal with those doubts swiftly, straightforwardly. We've got questions, we ask them. We, we're, we're seeking answers, we go until we find them. We don't allow doubts to fester like a cancer in our brain. It's not that I don't want you to pursue the doubts. I want you to pursue them on the other side to certainty. Because there is certainty available. you got questions about the truth of the faith. Let's talk about them. Because those questions, they are natural. They are honest. Those questions are not, they are not sin. Not dealing with those questions will lead you to sin. Don't let doubts remain. And then don't slip away from the fellowship of the church. Remember that a deliberate rejection of the faith begins by a slow drift away from Christ, His Word, and His people. No one drifts away from the church and drifts towards righteousness. They drift towards sin and destruction. So let this warning have its intended effect upon you and I, by God's grace, will allow this warning to have its intended effect upon me. 
Because if either one of us walks away, that's us. Second, we must hear and heed this warning relationally. That is, in regard to those who have already drifted away. So here's what I think we ought to do with this warning text this morning. After we've applied it to our hearts personally, we then take it and we apply it to someone we love, a brother and sister in Christ, a son or a daughter who professed Christ once but doesn't follow Jesus in any discernible way, a husband and a wife that at one, at, at one time it used to really burden our hearts that they weren't believers or, or that they're professed faith didn't bear any sort of fruit but now we just sort of settled in that this is just the way it is let this arouse you out of this relational apathy that treats apostasy or potential apostasy as if it's okay those loved ones of yours are walking blindly towards a consuming fire your children are walking blindly towards a consuming fire So seek them, confront them, have the hard conversations because that's what love demands. But finally, we must hear and heed this warning carefully. I am well aware that there are likely more than a couple handfuls of you in here this morning Sermons like this cause your heart to be invaded by a fear that will grip you for the next hours, days, and weeks. How do I know that? Been there. It's had that effect on me. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you are terrified and you are wondering, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And you're thinking back on some period of sin Or rebellion in your life and you're wondering, did I cross the line? Did I presume upon the grace of God? Maybe that's why I feel so cold and distant. Maybe God has rejected me and forsaken me and fear is just gripping you and it's not letting go. You already struggle to feel forgiven, to feel saved and a a message like this does not help the matter. I want to give you some hope. Not false hope, but real, solid hope that you can plant your feet on, okay? I'm going to give you three questions. I want you to answer them honestly for you. Three questions. Just point blank, yes or no. Don't even think about it too much. Just answer, right? Number one, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes or no? Number two, do you believe that his blood, his sacrifice is the only means by which sinners may be saved? Yes or no? Number three, do you believe that it is the Holy Spirit who graciously applies the work of redemption by Christ to individuals and that he is the one who transforms them into the image of Christ? Yes or no? If you answer yes, and I want you to notice, all of those questions are completely objective. They are all outside of you. I didn't ask you whether you felt saved. I didn't ask you whether you felt forgiven. I didn't ask you whether you, you know with an assurance born of God that Christ died for sinners, nay, that he died for you. I didn't ask you that just objectively. Is he who he says he is, and is he doing what he said he is going to do? Is Jesus the Son of God? Do you believe that His blood and His sacrifice are the only means by which sinners may be saved? And do you you see that His Spirit in the Scriptures and in the lives of His people is at work in applying the work of the cross to them, raising them from death to life, sanctifying them towards righteousness? Do you see that? If yes, look at me, beloved, you have not committed this sin. Because you have not rejected and renounced the Son, the sacrifice, and the Spirit. And you should take comfort in that. Okay, so let's, let's if, if you answered no, fear. But if you answered yes, let's put aside that fear because it is not you. I'm not saying that it may not be you if you walk away from Christ. Do you hear me? 
I am saying that it is not you if you still answer yes to this. So let's put the fear behind us and let's say, now, what do I do? You run to Christ. You don't feel forgiven? Guess who has forgiveness in his hands? Jesus. You go to him. You don't feel accepted? Guess whom the Father accepts? Those who are in the Son. Go to the Son. Flee to Jesus, cling to his cross as if there is no other hope found anywhere else and don't let go for anything and you'll be saved. The very fact that you are alarmed at the thought of having committed such a sin and being forever condemned and separated from the Father is a sure sign that you haven't. So you are free to feel loved. You are free to feel invited. You are free to feel accepted in Christ. You are free to come to Jesus and to drink from the well of grace and joy and forgiveness that he offers to you this morning. The Spirit's purpose in inspiring these Intense warnings in Scripture is to drive us to Christ that we may grasp a hold of Him by faith with an even firmer grip than we had before. And I have prayed this morning, and I will pray in just a moment specifically for you that that will be its effect. That you'll walk out of here with a white knuckled grip on the gospel of Jesus because you have no hope anywhere else. And if that's the case, you are in a good place. You're in the very place God designed that you would be after hearing a sermon like this. So if that is the result of this morning's message, you can be sure that you belong to him. And isn't that great? Isn't it wonderful that the warning passages of Scripture, if they indeed warn us, can actually be evidence that the Spirit is operating in our heart and in our life? You can walk out of here having just been attacked by the Spirit of God and feeling more secure than you did when you came in. If you hear this message and your heart fears and flees to Christ, to His blood, to His Spirit, here's what's true of you. Just receive it. You are saved, secure, safe, Loved, forgiven, chosen, called, you are Christ's. Because this is what he does with his people. This is what the Father does with his children. He warns them of danger. And if you've been warned, then I want you to know, beloved, there is a sacrifice for your sins. And nothing, nothing can take that away. And there is an expectation for you that is neither fearful nor terrifying, but is wonderful and joyful for you, the warned, those who have fled to Christ, those who are holding on to him with everything they have. For you, it is a glorious thing to fall into the hands of the living God.